0: Welcome. On today's episode of Speaking Out of Place, we speak with Naomi Oreskes, who is Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science and Affiliated Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. A world-renowned earth scientist, historian, and public speaker, she's a leading voice in the role of science in society, the reality of anthropogenic climate change, and the role of disinformation in blocking climate action. In 2010, she and her co-author Eric Conway published Merchants of Doubt, How a Hand Flow of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco smoke to climate change, where they identified something called the tobacco strategy that became paradigmatic in terms of corporate efforts to debunk science. This discovery led them to explore more deeply and more broadly the attack on science. They found that as science was demoted, the idea of market fundamentalism, or the magic of the market, became a mantra that covered up corporate malfeasance. In today's program, we discuss Oreska's and Conway's new book, The Big Myth, How American Business taught us to loathe government and love the free market. Before we begin, please like this episode and follow this podcast if you would like to support more programs like this one. And follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and suggest other programs. So Naomi, thank you so much for being on the show. You published this book in 2010, Merchants of Doubt: How a handful of scientists obscured the truth on issues from tobacco smoke to climate change. Could you tell us a little bit about that book? And then make the link to the big myth. How did the tobacco strategy pull you into this much bigger project?
1: Well, everything I've done that turned out to be important was sort of an accident. So I'm a geologist and a historian of science by training. And in the early 2000s, I was working on a big book on the history of oceanography. And I came across the work that oceanographers had done back in the 1950s, pointing out that burning fossil fuels produced carbon dioxide, which had the potential to change the climate of the planet in very dramatic ways. And as I dug into this literature, I realized that the scientific understanding of climate change was pretty robust. Pretty long standing, and that there really was no significant debate in the scientific mm. community that man made climate change was real, that it was underway, and that it was serious. So, this was in the year 2003, and I did a little study just to sort of satisfy myself that my own read of the situation was correct. And I ended up publishing that in 2004 as my paper, The Scientific Consensus on Climate Change. That was the first paper to document in a peer-reviewed journal that there was a consensus among experts about this problem. And this was at a time when the media was presenting the issue as this great debate. And George W. Bush had said, we didn't really know. Dick Cheney had given a big interview where he said, well, there might be some climate change, but you know, we don't really know what's causing." it. So I published this paper really as a sort of fact check on my own understanding of the status of the debate. And when that paper came out, I started getting attacked, threatening phone calls, weird emails from people in strange places and then some folks filed a complaint against me with the university of california so i call this my alice through the looking glass moment i went into a parallel universe from academic life where we care about facts and evidence and we support our claims with information and data and we go to archives and all those good things that we do as academic historians into a world of fact denial Now, today we all know that that's the world we live in, but in 2004, this was very shocking. And I didn't know who these people were, and I didn't know why they were attacking me. But it was a little scary. I mean, it was a difficult time in my life, because I also didn't know if my university would back me up. So I started talking to some colleagues about what was happening, and one of them said to me, you need to speak to Ben Santer, the scientist whose story begins the book of Merchants of Doubt. He's one of the key scientists who did the scientific work back in the 1990s, proving that the observed warming could not be explained by natural variability. And he had this very sad and troubling story of having been attacked for that work. And it was very similar to what was happening to me. And it was the same people that attacked him in the 90s were now attacking me in the early 2000s. And so I started digging, talking to a bunch of other colleagues, discovered that Eric Conway had found the same story about scientists who had worked on the ozone hole, and then Eric and I started working together, and that's what ended up becoming the book Merchants of Doubt.
0: So you began to understand that there was not just a couple of kooks out there, but almost a consortium of people with different kinds of grievances. And so it exposes you and creates all these contradictions, not only in research, but classrooms. So how did you get from the Merchants of Doubt to this much larger project that takes on not just people denying science, but putting in place this mystification of the markets?
1: The central question of Merchants of Doubt was why would intelligent, educated people reject climate science? Because the key protagonists in the story were themselves famous, prestigious, really important scientists. One of the people we studied, Frederick Seitz, had been president of the Rockefeller University, America's most prestigious research university, and a president of the National Academy of Sciences. So it wasn't remotely plausible that they didn't understand the science. And it didn't seem likely to us that they were doing it for money for a variety of reasons. But most importantly, empirically, we found very little evidence in the archives of financial motivation. I mean, some of mm. them did get some money for what they did, but it really didn't seem to be the driving force. But what we did find in the archives, in their papers, in their letters, in their publications, was a commitment to market fundamentalism. This idea that government regulation of the marketplace threatens freedom, threatens liberty, threatens democracy, and therefore it's really important to stand up against what they called government encroachment. Mm. And so they saw climate change, along with other environmental environmental issues like acid rain and the ozone hole, and also public health issues like tobacco control as a form of government encroachment. Now, up to a point, you could say, well, okay, it's fair enough to say you should set the bar high. And in some of their arguments, they do say, look, we want a really high bar for this because you're asking us to do something pretty big. Up to a point, that was legitimate. But like a lot of ideological arguments, it starts with something that's, you know, okay, fair enough and then it becomes, as I like to say, the ideology turns into pathology. It became a kind of pathological denial of scientific evidence, scientific facts, even work that people in their own institutions had done, their own colleagues, and in some cases, people they had hired. So one of the ironies of this story is that Jim Hansen was hired at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies by Robert Jastrow, one of the merchants of doubt. Another merchant of doubt, Bill Nirenberg, built the climate research group at University Mm. of California, San Diego. So it was a kind of pathology where they became so persuaded of their own righteousness that they were willing to deny and disparage scientific evidence, even attack their own colleagues. I mean, these same people, as I just said, attack the scientists who won the Nobel Prize for the work on the ozone hole. So it really becomes kind of pathological.
0: Yeah. And this pathology is fueled, as you say, by this mythification, but also kind of mystification. becomes so atmospheric that you can't touch it or feel it. And I always like to say, being here at Stanford, we not only drink the Kool-Aid, but we manufacture it. So <laughs> I was really fascinated by how you start looking at Austria, Mises and Hayek, and then this really strange and particularly mystifying American turn to it with Milton Friedman, which I think really puts us squarely into this mystification that, as you point out in the book, distorts in a meaningful way Hayek and Mises. Could you talk about that and the move into Friedman and the United States?
1: So the book Merchants of Doubt ends with us saying this is motivated by market fundamentalism. And it comes out of these individuals' own experience in the Cold War that they believed that they were fighting to contain communism and they had played a historically important role in the defense of freedom as they understood it. So when we finished that book, we were left with the obvious next question, well, where did market fundamentalism come from? And why would someone believe that when there was so much obvious historical evidence to refute that proposition? And so we started digging, and the deeper we dug, the further we went, and we found this really big, complicated story. As you said, I think the word consortium is a good word. Mm -hmm. It's not a conspiracy, although at times it takes on Mm -hmm. conspiratorial elements, but it's a kind of network or consortium of people who are working over a very long period of time, going back to the early 20th century, to build an ideology that basically says we should trust the marketplace, that markets are not merely an efficient way of developing and delivering goods and services, but that they're actually playing a crucial role in protecting political freedom, protecting political democracy. And they build that story in order to persuade people that government regulation of the marketplace whether it's to protect workers, consumers, or the environment, even though it might seem attractive superficially, what they're saying is, yeah, but don't be fooled by that Mm -hmm. because it will actually undermine freedom and democracy. And it's a very clever move because it takes what is initially a self-interested defense of the prerogatives Mm -hmm. of the privileged, the prerogatives of the captains of industry, and turns it into a seemingly virtuous defense of democracy. And of course, who wouldn't want to defend democracy?
0: And what was especially deft in this whole thing was that the got religious leaders on board, right? So you would think that people that would be sympathetic to are not be swayed by the magic of markets and the importance of wealth, all of a sudden, because precisely, they hook on to this notion of freedom in a religious sense. So could you talk about that a little bit? How, Because you mentioned both two aspects that I thought were really interesting, how they persuaded religious leaders in the United States to sign on to this, but also figures in popular culture. So he had this really two powerful non-economic actors coming in to grease the wheels, so to speak.
1: So the captains of industry that were studying this book spend many millions of dollars, even in 1930s dollars, so tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in today's dollars, on pushing forward this propagandistic idea that we should just trust markets, governments should get out of the way, as the Wall Street Journal often puts it, right? But it wasn't really working because in the face of the Great Depression, the claim that we could just trust markets to solve our problems was really not credible, nor was it credible in the face of brutal child labor, nor was it credible in the face of massive workplace injury and death that was common in the United States in the early 20th century. So it seemed pretty obvious to most Americans, and public opinion polls at the time showed this, that they needed governance, government on many levels, to address these diverse problems. And particularly during the Great Depression, when American capitalism and really global capitalism was more or less in free fall. And during the New Deal, the federal government stepped in a big way and, addressed many of the problems that had developed over this period of time. So the message was really not getting through, and they knew it. And so we found some fun memos in the archives where people in the National Association of Manufacturers, for example, say, well, we're not really getting through with this message. And one person even says, yeah, you know, business is not really a credible figure here. So we need to figure out a way to make the argument more credible. And so they do this in a number of different ways. And one of the key ways is through religious leaders. They realize that, you know, it's the really what today we call mm-hmm. the trusted messenger effect. If they hear a defense of business from business leaders, that's clearly self-serving and self-interested. But if they hear it from their religious minister on church of a Sunday, that's a very different matter. And so they begin to send propagandistic materials to ministers across the country. Now, one of the challenges we face as historians in, you know, You may have come across this in your work. It's a lot easier to document the supply of disinformation, harder to prove what effect it has. Mm. But we found one really brilliant example where a minister in Tennessee had used a book an incredibly racist and reactionary book called The Road Ahead Mm. uh, that had been promoted by the National Association of Manufacturers. And in this Sunday sermon, he is instructing his prisoners to read this book. Mm. It's a really appalling book. And Mm. one of the most striking parts of it is a chapter where he talks about how reports of lynching are greatly exaggerated. Oh, God. Yeah, and they're being exaggerated, he claims, by communists who are using this to try to discredit American democracy. So that's one specific example, but then there's a kind of larger thing. So after World War II, around 1948, a key player in this is the man J. Howard Pugh, who was the president of Sun Oil Company, what today we know as of Sunoco, and he was also a leader in the National Association of Manufacturers. He realizes that a key challenge for them involves religion, because if you think for only a minute about the message of Jesus, it's a message of love and compassion for the poor, and so many Protestants in the 1930s, mainline Protestants, and including influential figures like like Reinhold Niebuhr, say, look, you know, capitalism is leaving a lot of people in the dust. It's a Christian obligation to think about how to help these people. So Pew says, okay, that's really bad. We need to change that. We need to persuade mainline Protestants that free market capitalism, unregulated capitalism, economic freedom, as he likes to call it, is consistent with the message of Jesus. So that's a pretty good trick. And so how does he do it? Well, he helps to fund an organization known as Spiritual Mobilization. It's based in Southern California and helps to explain why the big box churches develop in Southern California, not in Mississippi or Kentucky or places that we often associate with evangelical Christianity in America. So he begins to fund this project, and they do a number of things. They create newsletters that are sent to ministers around the country, pledges, inviting ministers to pledge to help support free market capitalism. They emphasize the idea that this is an anti-Soviet and an Mm. anti-communist project. And this is a big part of this whole story, is the false dichotomy, the juxtaposition that on the one hand there's Soviet-style totalitarianism, and on the other hand there's free market capitalism as if there could be no middle ground. And this is important in the argument about religion because they say, look, communism is godless. So therefore, if you are a godful person, you should be a capitalist, right? And this proves a pretty powerful message and it's taken up by a lot of ministers. And then they promote it through magazines, newsletters, they create a journal called Christian Economics. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. I like that a lot, yeah. And Eric did a lot of hard work to find copies of that for us to read, Eric Conway, my co-author. And then they begin to promote ministers. And a fun detail in this story was, so the minister who's heading up a lot of this is a man by the name of James Fifield, based in Los Angeles, and with strong links to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. Los Angeles. When he gets ready to retire, they are looking for who would replace him. And they want to replace him with Norman Vincent Peale. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out Peale says no because he's doing pretty well on his own. But Peale, in later years, Officiated on the the wedding of Donald Trump in his first marriage. Oh my God!
0: Oh, I know. Yes, there's actually oh. a
1: direct link. And Mary and Fred Trump were parishioners in Norman Vincent Peale's church in New York wow. City.
0: Wow. You're exactly right. This dyad between Soviet communism and capitalism and the complete illusion of socialism, right? That socialism and the New Deal, all those formations.
1: Or even social democracy. A big yeah. part of this is to efface the distinction between European-style social democracy and socialism, as they would have been supported by, say, Norman Thomas in the United States.
0: Exactly. And there you have this huge empirical basis for how social democracy could be a good median between this. And you talk about Southern California, we talked about popular culture a bit but tell us about ronald reagan my favorite californian how he <laughs> steps into this chasm as it were and then fills it with his presence his charisma or whatever and mediates between these different bases to solidify in this image. And also, along the way, please to tell us about Little House on the Prairie. We, we need <laughs> to inform people, that. yes. Yeah.
1: I would have thought your favorite Californian was John Wayne, but, you know, family resemblance mm. with Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah. So we've just been talking about religion, and the, another really important area in which this propagandistic message is promoted is in popular culture, and a key part of that involves Hollywood because what's more popular in America than Hollywood. So already in the late 1940s, people associated with NAM and the Chamber of Commerce begin to bring pressure to bear on Hollywood to alter the message. So in the 1930s and even going back in the 20s, there were many Hollywood films that criticized American capitalism, often screwball comedies that presented mm-hmm. rich people as corrupt and you know rich women as ditzy. And one of the most successful films of that era is, of course, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. In 1946, Eric Johnston, the former president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, became president of the Motion Picture Association of America. In a talk to screenwriters, he said, We'll have no more Grapes of Wrath. We'll have no more Tobacco Roads. We'll have no more films that deal with the seamy side of American life. We'll have no more films that treat the banker as villain. And he begins to develop a set of policies to encourage Hollywood to make films celebrating the successes of free market capitalism, individual effort, you don't need the government to help you. And there's a number of interesting pieces in this story. One of them involves the libertarian screenwriter Ayn Rand, who's been super influential in American culture. So she's writing books that are then made into movies that are so extreme that even other right-wing people criticize her. Basically. I mean, she's a kind of crypto anarchist, right? Mm -hmm, Her mm -hmm. view is basically that you just let everyone do their own individual thing and the most intelligent, the most powerful, the most fit. And Mm -hmm. it's a very Darwinian view of the world will survive. So she's making these libertarian films in Hollywood, promoting individual freedom. Yet at the same time, she is writing censorship codes. Another key figure in this, of course, is Ronald Reagan. Most Americans know that before he was president, Reagan was an actor. But what they don't know is how he made that transition. And it turns out that story, which is ignored by most of his biographers is a really telling one. So in the late forties, Ronald Reagan was a Democrat. He was the president of a union, the Screen Actors Guild. But by the late 50s, he's now a Republican, and he's a highly anti-union, anti-government Republican. So how does that transformation take place? Well, a big part of the story involves the work he did at General Electric Corporation in the late 50s. Reagan is hired by General Electric to become a kind of public face of GE, and he does that in two ways. He becomes the host of a popular television series called General Electric Theater. It was one of the three most popular television shows in America in the late 50s. And each week it featured a didactic story of people succeeding by dint of their own effort, Mm -hmm. standing on their own two feet, rolling up their sleeves, Boys become men by not depending on other people to help them, but by figuring things out for themselves. Now, the program was well-produced. It often featured well-known actors. Mm -hmm. Harry Belafonte appears in one episode. And through this television show, Ronald Reagan became incredibly well-known. He starts to develop this persona beamed into tens of millions of American homes every week. He becomes very famous. So that's half his job. But the other half is that he represents GE to communities across America. They send him out to make speeches, to appear in factories, to meet with GE managers and workers, to give talks in schools and meet with teachers, to do the dinner circuit at Rotary Clubs, Mm -hmm. Lions Clubs, promoting the GE message. And what is that message? Well, it's the message that government just gets in the way. We don't need government. Government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And so the... Ideology the messaging that we know that we associate Mm -hmm. with Ronald Reagan was actually developed during this time that he was at GE So by the time he leaves he has developed what becomes known as the speech It's the speech he uses to endorse Mm -hmm. Barry Goldwater for president It's the speech he uses when he runs for governor of California And he also comes out of GE with one other key thing powerful and wealthy corporate backers who then finance his campaign for governor of California.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you know he succeeded where Goldwater failed. I mean, Goldwater is an anti-charismatic yeah. extremist, so to speak, and ran, of course, horrible movies. But as you say, Reagan has this locked up. He has a presence. He has the voice. He seems aw shucks, you know, all the tilts of the head and things like that. So he has it down. He becomes so powerful, and the message goes down like molasses. And again, and
1: it also has a kind of credibility because you know, Reagan was famous for factoids and these anecdotes that no one really ever knew if they were true. And part of the reason it has credibility is because when he goes on the the lecture circuit for GE, he meets all these people. So he's able to say, Well, when I was in Detroit, I met a factory worker who said X. Mm. And we don't know if it's true or not. Exactly. It's probably pretty likely that a lot of it is invented, Mm -hmm. but it has a certain kind of credibility because he has, in fact, met all these people.
0: And I really encourage people to read the book. It's a big, thick one and filled with nuggets. But as you point out, when we even today see these advertisements from Exxon, it's all this carbon capture and planting trees and this honeyed music and these nice-looking people holding little trees in their hands and everything will be fine. So there is a continuum, and yet the message is all the same. The government always interferes. There's no discussion about how much relies corporations have on governments to swing well, things that their too, way. Of oh,
1: well, that's too Oh, we didn't talk about Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, Let please me just do. Say a few words yeah. about that. But, oh, as so as other- many
0: words as you want, Naomi. This is great. <laughs>
1: yeah. So the other really astonishing part of the story is the history of the Little House on the Prairie series. So this is a book series that millions of American children read growing up, a beloved series, one of the best-selling children's book series in history, were marketed as the true life story of Laura Ingalls Wilder growing up on the American frontier. I certainly read them as a child thinking that they were true stories, but they weren't. And they weren't actually even written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And here we're drawing a lot on the work of Carolyn Fraser and Christine Woodside. I want to call out those mm-hmm. sources. Mm-hmm. It turned out that Laura Ingalls Wilder did want to write about her life, but she would just make sort of rough notes on a little pad of paper mm-hmm. and give them to her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. Rose Wilder Lane was one of the most influential and one of the most strident libertarian voices of this time, along with Ayn Rand and also Isabel Burns. They've been referred to as the three furies of libertarianism oh, and referred to that by people who liked them. <laughs> <laughs> So Rose Wilder Lane had written an extreme crypto-anarchist book called Discovery of Freedom, and through this work had become friends with J. Howard Pugh, was a correspondent of Herbert Hoover. She's very connected in very powerful, very influential right-wing libertarian circles in the 1930s. So then she begins to craft her mother's stories, but not into the true life stories of what really happened, which in reality were was actually stories of extreme hardship, repeated failure, and the whole thing made possible by the federal government through the Homestead Act. Instead, she crafts them into libertarian parables of individual self-sufficiency. And so these stories are marketed and sold to the American people as the true stories of the Ingalls Wilder family, but they're not true at all. And of course, in later years, they get made into a television series starring the dishy Michael Landon. Millions and millions of people read or hear these stories and don't really realize that these are actually part of a larger propaganda effort that is directly linked back to men like Herbert Hoover mm-hmm. and Howard Pugh.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I grew up with these things, too. The attraction of the notion that you know, individuals could make it in the wilderness or in New York or wherever, as long as everybody got out of the way. But I'd like to sort of make the pivot into climate change because that's such a alienated existence to believe that people independently could do everything to get out of the way, which also means any kind of sociality, any kind of cooperation, any kind of interdependency, whether it be between people or people in the natural world is bad. And we could talk a lot about how this voice, this promotion of the individual is also an individual over nature itself. Could we sort of transition into your work on climate change? And in particular, something that, as you know, we're fighting here and I know at Harvard as well, the fact that universities are making good efforts to address climate change and setting up schools and centers and all that, but remaining tethered to accepting money from fossil fuel companies because they still have this beneficent idea of corporations that sort of gets foistered by this freedom to explore and all this. Could you tell us a little bit about your own experiences trying to build programs and also to bring administrators into the loop about how fossil fuel money is not benign, it's not neutral, it's not just a check, but there are all sorts of strings attached. Talk a little bit about this and especially how often enough universities say, well, we don't want to impinge upon the academic freedom of our researchers.
1: Well, thanks for asking. This is obviously a very complex, layered subject, and it connects to my other work, as you said, on climate change, and also my most recent book before The Big Myth, which is Science on a Mission, which looked explicitly at the question of how funding sources structure academic and intellectual investigations and how that structure can actually determine what we learn and what we don't learn about the natural world, and even how we conceptualize the natural world. So part of the power of that book, I think, is that after 17 years of research, (laughs) I had some pretty strong cases where you could clearly see how certain research questions were set aside, where others were privileged, and ultimately, I argue in the book, not just the facts of what we learned about the ocean, but even the way scientists view the ocean. So my favorite nugget in that book was a very important scientist who led Decades of Navy-funded research on the ocean in which he said, yeah, we thought of the ocean as a medium in which men and machines would travel, and the machines including intercontinental ballistic missiles, we didn't think of it as an abode of life. And that Mm -hmm. to me is just so telling, right? Because Mm -hmm. of course, in theory, it could be both, but in practice, it almost never is. And by focusing on what the Navy needed to know about the ocean, which was the ocean as a physical medium, water that was characterized by its salinity and its temperature and its pressure, and not on the ocean as a boat of life, You know, I argue that that has contributed to the massive destruction of ocean ecosystems with which we're now grappling today. So it does matter who pays for research, and we're very naive if we think it doesn't. We're ignoring huge amounts of evidence if we think it doesn't. But that reality, those truths, those historical truths stand in tension with a kind of million ideal that the way knowledge advances is by simply letting everyone talk, let everyone have it say. There's no research question that's illegitimate. There's no funding source that's illegitimate. I begin science on a mission with the old joke in academic life where someone says there's no such thing as tainted money except mm. taint enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Someone actually said that to me early in my career. so <laughs> I'm not making that up.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: And I one time had a great conversation with Derek Bach, the former president of Harvard, about this. Derek Bach was a fantastic president, much beloved, but he publicly said many years ago, well, you know, once we get the money, we do good things with it. And that's all that really matters. Mm, mm. Well, yeah, not really. Yeah, right? Yeah. Because it influences how we think and and it also, of course, gives credibility to the sponsors. Yep. Because, exactly. And then they use it. They advertise. Yep. Well, we have these partnerships with Harvard, we have these partnerships with Stanford, MIT, Caltech. And we saw this very, very clearly in the history of tobacco, where the tobacco industry used its partnerships with universities and even medical schools, even cancer research centers around Mm, the country mm. to say, well, look, we really care about cancer. We're funding Sloan Kettering. How could we not care about cancer? So this is used to buy credibility and then to stave off serious questions about who these people are what they're doing and what impact they're having in the world. It was
0: curious that the dean of the new school for sustainability here, when f- it was the first announcement that appeared in New York Times, there was an interview with him, and he was asked the question about taking money from fossil fuel companies, and he said, we will take money from anybody who wants to help. <laughs> and that was supposed to settle the question, but actually raise the question that, right. that we're asking well, and today. And that's
1: astonishing on two levels, first of all, because it, it poses a question... Well, do they actually want to help? I mean, I think all the historical evidence makes it pretty clear that Exxon Mobil's agenda is to continue drilling for, finding, drilling for, and developing and selling fossil fuels as long as they can. And to make as much money as possible, because that's their business model. And there isn't a shred of evidence to say that it's anything but that. So what does it mean to help? And who are they helping? So I think there's actually a giant question about whether or not these people, quote, Mm -hmm. want to help, even if they did want to help on some level. What are the consequences for the institution, for the integrity of our work, for the integrity of our reputation? You know, I wrote a piece about the Jeffrey Epstein money at Harvard, Mm -hmm. which Harvard has now said was a mistake. And it's also not true that they'll take money from anyone. I mean, if they knew, they wouldn't take money from drug dealers. They wouldn't take money from people involved in human trafficking. I mean, we draw all kinds of lines and the question is always not, do we draw a line? The question is, where do we draw the line and how do we make those choices? So Harvard took very substantive amounts of money from Jeffrey Epstein after he had been a convicted sex offender. Even after that, they continued to take money from him. So here's the question I posed in the Scientific American column I wrote on this. What does that say to the rest of the world about who we are, about our moral compass? And when we ask them to believe us, When we put out a new study from the Harvard Medical School or the Harvard School of Public Health about the efficacy of masks or the safety of COVID vaccines, Mm -hmm. I mean, if I were a person who was already maybe a little distrustful of elite universities, and we are elite, and now I find out that these so-called reputable, credible people are financing their research with money from a convicted sex offender, I mean, why should I think that that institution has moral or intellectual credibility? Exactly.
0: I mean, three points that sort of spring to mind. One is, it's not like Harvard is some poor, bereft institution. I'm sure there are other sources of funding. The second one is taking money from oil companies. There's often the argument, well, the oil companies need to do this because, after all, they're All these moms and pops are depending on them for their retirement funds and all this. When in actuality, you know that most of the major shareholders are other corporations. So, again, feeds back into exactly what you said about the mystification of the market, that everybody benefits from a thriving economy, but without looking too hard at how those profits are made. And I'm so glad you mentioned COVID and misinformation because, again, at Stanford, I'm sure you followed this. We had a couple of colleagues here. They were basically, you know, working for Trump, working for DeSantis and promoting just really bad science, if not even science. One was not epidemiologist. It was just not his field. And we pressed the university to say something about it. And they wouldn't because of the notion of academic freedom. But that's a really perverse and warped notion of academic freedom. And one thing that I think, when you were here one time, somebody asked you the academic freedom question, and I think you had a really great response. And I'd like you to share it with our listeners today, which was, well, academic freedom is a value, but it's not the only value. And you mm-hmm. talked about other competing values that we might want to think about. And also at Stanford, we've talked about, well, with academic freedom comes academic responsibility. You just don't get to say anything. There's a responsibility built into it. So could you talk a little bit about responsibility, but also other values besides academic freedom?
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for reminding me that I said that. That was a good answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Stuck in my head.
1: I know. Yeah. And it's very interesting, because just as we talked about how the whole mystification of the marketplace, market fundamentalism, depends upon creating a false dichotomy. It's what philosophers call the fallacy of the excluded middle, right? Yep, yep. That you only have two choices, totalitarianism mm-hmm. or unregulated capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so there's a similar thing going on with this academic freedom argument, that the only choice we have is to be absolute anarchists about academic freedom, that anyone should be allowed to research anything, say anything, no matter how damaging Mm -hmm. or destructive, versus, you know, that it's either that or it's totalitarianism and the collapse of the research university. And that's just silly, because Mm -hmm. as I've pointed out in many other places, if we take free speech as our basic standard, and if we stipulate that, of course, we all believe in the basic values instantiated in the First Amendment, But we can also recognize that courts have never held that the First Amendment was absolute. And we saw this just yesterday in the judge's decision about the defamation case. The First Amendment does not protect defamation. The First Amendment does not protect fraud. So as a kind of basic floor, we can say that First Amendment rights are never absolute. And so then the question becomes, Okay, that's about the government. The First Amendment is about what the federal government can and cannot do. But of course, we're not the federal government. We're a research community. We're an academic community dedicated to developing knowledge, sustaining old knowledge and developing new knowledge, and maybe, hopefully, if we're lucky, even a bit of wisdom. So then the question comes up, if we know that people in our own community are saying things that are false, that are demonstrably false, and that violate the basic principles of scientific research, that violate the basic norms of scientific behavior, I mean, in my other book, Why Trust Science, I I basically talk about how in all scientific research, and I would say actually all academic research, there's a basic assumption of a kind of intention of goodwill. Everyone involved in this wants to learn the truth. And so we do welcome criticism because that's partly how we identify and correct error. But if somebody is trying to manipulate the system, if someone's trying to game the system, then they're no longer operating in good faith. And I think what you point out about the Stanford case and COVID, I mean, you had substantial evidence that these people were not operating in good faith. And in fact, what they were doing, and I did follow it from a distance, Mm. it was a classic merchants of doubt strategy. One of the things we point out in merchants of doubt that should always be a red flag for anyone who's trying to judge information is to ask what is the person's expertise? In Merchants of Doubt, we showed how a group of physicists use their authority, their cultural and intellectual authority as physicists. To make claims in fields that they had no expertise at all, like cancer oncology. And mm-hmm. that should have been a giant red flag, especially to journalists who were uncritically quoting them because they were scientists. Right. But of course, yep. the category scientist, that comes from the 19th century. No one in the world today, I mean, if you go to a cocktail party, you meet a colleague, and you say, What do you do for a living? They don't say, Oh, I'm a scientist, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, they say, Oh, right. I'm an atmospheric chemist, yeah, yeah. or I'm a structural biologist, mm-hmm. right? Expertise is Defined, it's often narrow, sometimes too narrow, but it is. Mm. So these folks you were talking about, as you said, and in most cases they had little or no expertise in areas that were relevant to these questions about COVID safety. And that should have been a red flag. And so I do think it's deeply problematic when university administrators say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do, because that's not true. Exactly. And as as you said, to bring it back to the core issue, academic freedom is a value. It's a value I hold very highly. I would be very upset if my own academic freedom were denied. But yet, I also recognize that if I said something that could lead to people being killed,
0: exactly, yeah.
1: you know, I would think twice, right? Yeah. And I would say, okay, what is the value of this information being propagated versus what is the risk and the potential harm? And now, though, we go another step, which is that these people are propagating disinformation. Right. And it's disinformation that can get people killed. And so now you've got two strikes against them and then they're misrepresenting their expertise. That's three strikes. So if it was a ball game, we would call them out.
0: Right, and then most perniciously on the fourth strike, I guess, is that Mm -hmm. politicians like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis then enact policies that have massive bad results on the basis of the science. I'd like to talk about the fact that here at Stanford, you know this well, the big group that's pushing for really careful analysis and scrutiny about accepting fossil fuel money are graduate students. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what kind of messages to send these people that come into graduate school with all the good ambitions and hunger for science and knowledge, and then see this bad modeling before them. What can we do about it?
1: Well, I want to say it makes me really, really happy that the graduate students are taking the lead on this. I think it's so compelling because they're the ones who are trying to build their own futures, both as researchers, but also as people living on this planet. And the fact that they are willing to ask these questions is really compelling, because denying fossil fuel money could, in fact, hurt their potential to do research in the short run. And it gets back to your point about people saying, oh, we have to take this money because people have their pensions fund invested in it. I mean, if anybody would have an immediate self-interest in accepting this money, it is the graduate students. And yet... They are saying, and so again, this is where the point comes out that we can recognize multiple values that can coexist. Mm. Of course, they want to do research. That's why they are in graduate school. Yeah. And if they're at Stanford, then we know that there are super smart and talented people who have the potential to have great careers ahead of them but they don't want to do it at the expense of everything else. And I think it's just fantastic that they see that and they're willing to stand up and be counted in a way that is really courageous because Mm. it is risky. Graduate students are some of the most vulnerable people in the university. They're more vulnerable than undergraduates because undergraduates Mm -hmm. generally pay tuition or their parents are paying their tuition, right? But graduate students are really vulnerable. And so it's a very powerful statement that these graduate students are speaking up and want to be heard on this issue.
0: You know, I've heard from many of them that they go to talk with their advisors, and their advisors say, Well, we know you're doing this social justice work, but that's not why you're here. So, you know, take these exams, take these courses, teach your courses, and do that maybe some down the line. And most of the students say, I can't disaggregate it this way. These things are of the same piece, right? Yeah, that, and I
1: think it shows how academics can become incredibly tunnel visioned. So that's a really interesting statement. It's not why you're here. Well, that's a really interesting question, because why are we here (laughs) as academics? And why does anyone go into science? I mean, I can speak from my own experience and virtually every person I know. There are people who go into science simply because it's interesting or it's because what they were good at. But I would say the vast majority of people I knew, even in my generation, and certainly in this generation, go into science because we believe that science has the potential to make the world better. Yeah. It has the potential to cure disease, find resources that let us live more comfortable lives, make our lives richer because we understand the natural world around us, make us appreciate the incredible beauty and diversity of nature. I mean, the whole point of science, why, why do taxpayers support it? Why do we have a National Science Foundation? Why do all these federal agencies support science? Well, OK, a lot of it is for weapons. I have to acknowledge <laughs> mm-hmm. that. But a lot of it is based on the premise that science improves our lives. And so if that's why we're here, then these questions are actually essential to the Mm. larger project of doing science. And any professor, any advisor who says that's not why you're here, I have to say, I feel like they're missing, kind of missing the bigger point.
0: Exactly. And it creates, well, I think you put it beautifully. It really helps clarify Mm. what the point of all this is. Maybe my last question it could give you some space to talk about what's going on with your work right now and perhaps any messages of things that you see that are positive coming out.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, after I finished my Merchant's out, someone asked me that question. They said, what are you going to do next? And I said, my laundry.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: right now I'm pretty tired. It's been a hard few years for all of us. Yeah. Eric Conway and I worked incredibly hard to get yeah. this book done. So right now I'm just trying to take stock, promote the book, have conversations like these. And just think about what's next. Try not to rush right into the next project. Because I've had a long career where I always did rush into my next project. Yeah. And in the hope thing, well, yeah, I have to say I don't like it because I feel like it's part of this cultural pressure to be mm. positive, to be mm. up, you know, it's mm. the Norman Vincent Peale thing, the power of positive yeah. thinking. Yeah. And I sometimes feel like we're in a bad place and we need to sit with that badness. Yeah. And I also sometimes feel like hope is an excuse for not getting justifiably angry so after the Mm -hmm. most recent shooting the governor of tennessee said well what we need now are hope and prayers and i think that's all wrong and i think you agree with me on this no we actually need justified anger and then we need to channel that anger into action so of course i'm not saying everybody should just despair and give up and go crawl into a cave but i think we really need to take on board that we have a right to be angry about (laughs) the bill of goods that we have been sold and we have a right to be angry about the way university administrators have aligned themselves with destructive forces and really think hard about what are the actions we can take to channel our anger into action.
0: I love that response. And I'm thinking of my colleague Gayatri Spivak. We were doing an event together and I mentioned hope. And she, in her very arch and formal way, said, well, David, you can hope all you want, but you can't make me hope. (laughs) So (laughs) I think it's good to have that kind of sobering message. And the books that you've written are so useful in helping us get a sense of what's actually going on. You talk about the National Association of Manufacturers and this consortium of religious leaders, politicians, business people. It shows exactly what we're up against. And I think that that, in an odd way, helps us work better. We, We understand the dimensions and the fact that a humanist, for example, I'm a humanist, I'm not a scientist, but if I can start looking at cultural forms and how they are complicit with these things, we can each contribute in a small way to a larger struggle, so to speak. So.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that was yeah. one reason I was excited to talk to you today, because yeah. climate change is no longer a scientific problem. Yeah. I mean, it was a scientific problem back in the 50s and 60s when scientists were trying to figure out, are fossil fuels changing the planet? But we know that they are now, Mm -hmm. and now it's really a cultural problem about how do we make the cultural change to get us to a place where our economic systems serve us and don't destroy us.
0: Well, thank you so much again for being on the show and for this amazing book, as I said Folks in the audience, you have to get it and read it. Take your time because you approach this problem from so many different angles and with wonderful stories, some of them hilarious and others hilariously bad. But I wish you the best with the laundry and everything else that that (laughs) helps you breathe deeply and reemerge, refresh to do whatever you're going to do next. I look forward to meeting you finally face to face in a few weeks. Likewise.
1: Yeah, me too. And by the way, I want to say I did read your book and I loved it. I love the whole concept that you have about speaking out of place. Because I feel like that's what the administrators of Harvard have always said to the students. Oh, you know, don't worry, you're pretty little heads about this. Just get back to work, get your degrees. You know, you can take care of this when you're older. And it really is about people finding their voices and not being shut down. So I really appreciate that message. Oh,
0: well, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show. It was really great speaking with you.